Come on in, come on. So we are, uh, we're taking our time and just kind of moving slowly through what is the most amazing sermon that's ever been preached, right? The Sermon on the Mount. And now, now I don't know, but I don't, I don't think Jesus only gave this message once. I believe that maybe as Jesus traveled around the region of Galilee and spoke to people about the kingdom of God and the kind of just the nature of the kingdom, that he preached this message, or at least themes from this message many times. Um, in the beginning, he talks about the character of kingdom people, right? That's a section we call the Beatitudes. And then there's a section where Jesus is kind of just correcting misunderstandings about the law of God, the you've heard it said, but I say section, right? Where he talks about rightly understanding the Old Testament law against murder and divorce and so on. Jesus just explained all those things. But now, starting in chapter 6, we come to a section where Jesus is going to speak about spiritual practices and how we should perform them. And specifically, he's going to talk about giving our good works, that's today, and then praying and then fasting. And so we're going to take a look at each one of those sections. And you're going to hear from Wesley Broderick next week. Yeah, yeah. Josh Osborne the week after that. So I'm, ex- wow. Okay, I'm excited for that. And you should be too. Maybe not quite that excited, but uh, no. it's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. I'm super excited. So we're going to, today we're going to be in Matthew 6, 1 through 4. If you have your Bibles, if not, it'll be up here on the screen. It starts out, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So Jesus here, he starts with a warning, right? Be careful. So that should wake us up a bit. What is the warning? He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. So when he talks about practicing righteousness, he means acts of righteousness, or a number of scholars translate this as good works. Be careful not to practice your good works in front of others to be seen by them. And then look at the second line. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Okay, what is Jesus saying here? Well, first let's start with what he's not saying. So he's not saying if you do good works, hide them. Okay? A lot of people read, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, and then put a full stop right there. And cut out the end of that sentence, which is what? In order to be seen by them, right? Remember, this is just one part of a much larger sermon. So if we rewind to what, we rewind to what Jesus just said a few minutes back in his sermon, we would see Jesus said, quote, in the same way, Let your light shine before others that they may see your what? Good works, right? But here is the key line. And glorify your Father in heaven. Not glorify you. That's the test. So if you're like thinking, do I tell people about this cool Jesus thing I did? Do I post it on Instagram? 
Do I tell people or keep it a secret? The test is, does doing that glorify God? Like, here's an example. There was a while back where Kate and I heard about someone going through a hard season financially. And so we decided to give them some money to like, help them out, right? And I don't tell you this to glorify myself, right? I'm, I'm, I'm sure you all kind of do this stuff once in a while. So I just tell you this is a real life kind of case study of how this worked. So we decided to help them out, put some cash in an envelope, put it in their mailbox, didn't put our name on it or anything. And to this day, sometimes when I see those folks that we gave that envelope, I want to ask, like, did it help? <laughs> like, did what help? Did, that, did you find encouragement from that secret envelope in your mailbox 12 years ago? Or whatever it was, you know? These are the thoughts that surface once in a while in my mind. Don't look at me like that. I know you. Just polish your halo. Just sit. But who am I trying to glorify there? Right? Me. Right? I want some recognition. But then Jacob and Jaya come and tell us about all the ways that individuals and churches are giving money to help spread the gospel and dig wells and help kids in India. About how the money you gave went to bless and honor these folks. And it's beautiful, and it moves us to action, and it makes us think, like, wow, the Father is amazing. And those stories of good works glorify Him. So the test is, does talking about, does making this good deed public and known? Does, that, does, it, you know, does it glorify God, or does it glorify me? Jesus is saying, when you do good works, don't do them to look good in front of other people. And here's the thing, Jesus really cares about his followers' behavior. He wants you to do good and right things. I hear people say on a regular basis, you know, the gospel isn't about behavior modification. And I think to myself, what gospel are you reading? There's a ton in there about transformation of behavior. But that said, for Jesus, right behavior isn't enough. We need the right heart posture or motivation behind our behavior. And there's a temptation that we all face to do right things for all sorts of kind of ulterior, goofy, weird, narcissistic reasons. So I'm up here teaching about Jesus, but you don't know my ultimate motivation, right? I could be up here because I love Jesus, and I want to serve Jesus with my life, and I feel like this is what I was made to do, and I love you a ton, and I feel like this is the role I play in our community, I could be up here for that reason, or I could be up here because this is my job, and I have bills to pay, and I really wanted the weekend off, but there was nobody else to teach this weekend, so here I am. (laughs) Or worse, I could be up here because I can have more power and authority to dominate and impose my will on people. And to be honest, I like to think I'm up here for some really good reasons, but in all reality, there's probably a little bit of some weird motives mixed in. Right? We all are kind of a mixed bag of motivations that's hard to kind of parse out. So the question that you have to ask yourself on a regular basis, and then I have to ask myself as an occupational hazard with my job, is why am I doing this good thing? Whether it's teaching the words of Jesus, or serving on the hospitality team, or loving your two-year-old, or giving to the needy, or anything good. What is my motivation? Is it to glorify me? Or glorify God. So Jesus goes on. Verse 2. He says, So when you give to the needy, 
So notice it says when you give to the needy, not if. Jesus assumes, well, of course, if you follow me, then the natural byproduct is going to be some kind of good work. Secondly, that phrase, give to the needy, is a, it's a bit hard, a hard phrase to translate. It's not just giving your money. It is that, but it's also giving your time or giving up some space in your life. Kind of means all those things. And Jesus is going to deal here with motivation. And Jesus has a wrong motivation and a right motivation. So first off, the wrong. He says, when you get to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets. So as far as we know, people did not actually play a trumpet when they gave to the needy in Jesus' day. Jesus is either referencing some cultural thing from his day that we don't completely understand, or he's just being silly and saying, you don't need to announce it to the world. When you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues, and even on the streets to be honored by others. Now this is the first time that Jesus uses a word that would later become a Jesusism, the word hypocrite. And it's used by Jesus 17 times in the New Testament, usually for the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees and the teachers of the Torah. Now in Jesus' day, hypocrite wasn't a pejorative like it is today. It did not mean deceiver, really. Hypocrite was the word used of Greek actors in the theater at the time. The hypocrites were actors who wore masks in the theater. The same person might play a couple different characters. So they would change into a different mask as another character was on stage, which is just a perfect word picture by Jesus, isn't it? Jesus is saying that we can be like that. We can see our spiritual lives as a performance. We can try to look like someone who we're not for a praise of the crowd. That is hypocrisy. And what's very interesting to me is that the first one to call out religious hypocrisy was not an atheist, you know, Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris or some sort of critic. It was Jesus. So the religious hypocrisy that really bothers the world and really bothers most of us in this room, guess what? Really bothers Jesus too. And here is his issue with this kind of this hypocritical theatrical righteousness. He says at the end of verse 2, he says, Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full, these hypocrites who announce what they're doing. So Jesus' warning initially seems really not real severe, right? Like he doesn't threaten hypocrisy with the fires of hell or lightning bolts from heaven or anything like that. He simply says those who do what they do to be seen by others have received their award. Essentially, they, they got all they're going to get. And he just leaves it there. If you don't pause and think about it, you might not realize how sobering that actually is. God has so much for you. God is a generous giving God. But sadly, you can miss out on that. He's saying that this momentary rush of dopamine, that temporary boost of self-esteem, right? That momentary affirmation given to you by that person or group of people, at least until you do something that upsets them. Those little heart icons accumulating in a fake online world. That's what you get, and that's it. 
He's touching on a reality mentioned in Proverbs 29.25. Proverbs 29.25. The fear of man, which is living for the approval of others, is a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. It's a trap. It looks and maybe feels for a moment really appealing. But doesn't actually give us what we're looking for. The point being that treating the applause of others as the ultimate reward in life is, in the end, a futile endeavor. Because the approval of people doesn't last. You have it for a moment, and then it's gone. And then you've got to do something else to get it back again. I mean, consider for a moment how many people in our culture alone have fallen from grace, right? People who were once held in high regard and applauded by the masses are now canceled or condemned. It can turn on a dime. You can be praised one day and cursed the next. And there has never been a moment in your life or in mine where we went, you know, I think after people recognizing that thing I did, I don't think I need any more human approval for the rest of my life. I think I'm good now. We end up living with our emotional state hinging on what other people might think about us. And we can wind up living under the tyranny of the approval or disapproval of other people, which suffocates us and others. And in kind of a strange turn of event, instead of kind of contributing to the flourishing of the world, which is what we're meant to do, we wind up contributing to the destruction of it because we spread insecurity and fear. Because if you're living for the praise of others you will never get enough. There will never be a moment where you go, I'm good now. I'm a good enough person. I'm approved of by enough people. I think I'm going to take a little time off from all that. Right? The fear of man won't let you do that. It's a snare. It's a trap. If you live by the approval of people, you will die still wondering if you have it. And so Jesus says, if you are doing good deeds to impress people, Pat on the back, a little clap, someone saying, you're amazing, whatever, fine. You'll get what you want. But that's all you'll get. Jesus says, you are setting your sights way too low. There's something better. Like there's so much more that the Father has for you. Okay, now on to the right motivation. That's the next line, verse 3. But when you give to the needy, Here's the right motivation. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So how exactly do we do that? How is that even possible? Well, remember, Jesus is talking less about behavior here and more about heart motivation, right? He's saying, as we follow Jesus over a lifetime, the end goal is to grow and mature into the kind of people who naturally do Jesus-like things without even thinking about it. Dallas Willard describes these kind of people. He says these are, quote, the kind of people who have been so transformed by their daily walk with God that good deeds naturally flow from their character are precisely the kind of people whose left hand would not notice what their right hand is doing. As, for example, when driving one's own car or speaking one's native language, what they do, they do naturally, often automatically, simply because of what they are pervasively and internally. 
These, pe- these are people who do not have to invest a lot of reflection in doing good for others. Their deeds are in secret, no matter who is watching. For they are absorbed in the love of God and, and of those around them. They hardly notice their own deeds and rarely remember it. Bonhoeffer calls this self-forgetfulness. And it doesn't mean that we don't take joy in good works. Right? I think it's right and fitting to do Jesus-like things and get a whole lot of joy and meaning and purpose and satisfaction out of them. He's saying that our long-term goal is to become the kind of people who follow Jesus and are transformed and just naturally do good works. Naturally do Jesus things. The trajectory of your life takes you to a place where good works and generosity are just natural. It just comes out of who you have become through following Jesus. You don't even have to think much about it. He says, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Then next, verse 4, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. He sees all your life. Your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, this is the most fascinating part of this teaching to me. Jesus just said, the right motivation for secretly giving to the needy, or I think any good work, is to to get a reward from your Father in heaven. So I come from a tradition that avoided talking about God rewarding what we do. And I understand where that comes from. Right? The teaching of Scripture is that you don't earn salvation. Salvation is an unmerited gift, right? So talking about rewards for doing good feels like it tiptoes into heresy, doesn't it? Now, it doesn't say what the reward is, so be careful not to fill in the blank with, like, a new Mercedes. It doesn't say what the reward is. Maybe he'll bless financially, maybe bless spiritually, maybe blesses in other areas. That's up to him. He just says, do it, but he doesn't say because it's the right thing to do. He says, do it, because God will see it and reward you. The Father will notice you. Even if it's in secret, he'll see it, he'll notice, and he'll reward you. You know, we were born with a desire to be noticed. right? If you have kids, one phrase you will hear over and over is this. Watch me. Watch me, Daddy. Watch me, Mommy. Watch me. Watch me ride my bike. Watch me do a cartwheel. Watch me jump off the couch. Whatever. Watch me climb this tree. Listen to this joke. Watch me. Here, you know, they'll tell the same joke for a hundred times because they love to have their people smile and their daddies smile, right? We want to be seen and noticed, especially from a father. And I know that isn't very PC right now, but there's scientific evidence to back that up. We all are born with a healthy desire to be noticed and rewarded by our Father. Just with his relationship, his smile, his pleasure over our life. But if you grew up in a family that was less than healthy, which is a lot of us, that healthy desire for your Father's approval quickly becomes a desire to be noticed and look good in front of other people. And it's just a hamster wheel. And our culture is obsessed, I think even more now than ever, because of this kind of the breakdown of family, 
the dismantling of fatherhood, it's obsessed with image, with looking good over being good, with applause and accolades from the masses rather than the attention and approval of a father. And it's exhausting. Always kind of trying to keep up, impress people, stay cool, look busy, whatever it is. We end up living with our emotional state rising and falling based on what other people are or aren't saying about us. So how do we break free? What I love about Jesus is he always just has these some small creative steps to take. So for him, this teaching in front of you, it's very simple. You want freedom? Here's what you do. Sometime in the next few weeks, just do something Jesus-like. Do some good work. Give something to the needy. Volunteer somewhere. And here's the thing. Do it in secret. Just don't tell anybody about it. And when you do it, pause for a moment and imagine the Father's face. Like, actually think of his face and imagine a smile there. You were made to be seen. You were made to be loved and adored. And as Emily was talking about, you were made to be delighted in and approved of by the eyes of of God, your Father. It's a part of what it means to be made in the image of God. And if Jesus is to be believed here, Every act of love toward your neighbor, every pursuit you make to know him, every discipline you undertake to become like him, every step in following the way of Jesus is seen and celebrated by your heavenly father. Your father sees you, sees everything you do, regardless of what others see. And when you love others, when you pursue him, when you choose to live for his eyes, he delights in you. C.S. Lewis talks about this in the work entitled The Weight of Glory. He says, The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work, or a father and a son, it seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. God takes pleasure in you and what you do. And I love how Lewis says it. Like, that almost seems impossible. Seems like that's too much glory and honor for the Father to bestow on lowly creatures like us. But he does. And it's important that we know this. You already have his love. You're in relationship. But just imagine his smile over your life. And let that smile be enough. And experience freedom in the kingdom of God. In the words of the old hymn writer, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just, I just simply pray that you would do a deep work into the hearts of all of us, Lord, to free us from the bondage of living for the approval of man. I pray that we would, you just, we would just continually recalibrate our hearts, help us to avoid putting on some sort of performance, Lord. We want our hearts and our lives to just, we just want to practice righteousness for the right reasons, for you and your glory.
And so, God, we ought just confess we're often hypocritical. Sometimes we want to act righteous, be seen as righteous, Lord, but you're calling us to be righteous. So, Lord, free us from the, the imaged, focused life that surrounds us on every side. Turn our eyes upon you, Lord. And we pray these things in your name. Everybody said, amen. Amen. So, um, do we want to do prayer or do we just want to let people go? We had ministry time earlier. What do you want to do, Chuck? We're going to let you go. You're, gonna, you're free to go. Let them go. Have a great day.